Welcome to I'm a Writer, but my guest today is E.J. Coe. E.J. Coe is the author of the memoir, The Magical Language of Others, which won a Washington State Book Award, Pacific Northwest Book Award, Association for Asian American Studies Book Award, and was long listed for the Penn Open Book Award. Coe is also the author of the poetry collection, A Lesser Love, a Pleiades Press Editor's Prize for Poetry winner. She earned her MFA at Columbia University in New York for creative writing and literary translation and her PhD at the University of Washington in English Language and Literature, studying Korean-American literature, history, and film. Ko has received National Endowment for the Arts, McDowell, American Literary Translators Association, and Kundimon Fellowships. She lives in Seattle, Washington. Her debut novel, The Liberators, out on Tin House November 7th, is one of LitHub's most anticipated books of 2023. The Liberators is an exquisitely drawn portrait and symphonic testimony of guards, prisoners, perpetrators, and liberators spanning continents and four generations of two Korean families forever changed by fateful past decisions made in love and war. Beautiful and deeply moving, The Liberators is an elegantly wrought family saga of memory, trauma, and empathy, and a stunning testament to the consequences and fortunes of inheritance. Welcome, EJ. Um, I'm so happy to talk to you. I'm I'm really grateful that you had the time to come on. This book is holy shit amazing. <laughs> oh, that's really nice to hear. I, I've been listening to your interviews for quite a while now. And so Seriously? It's, it's exciting to hear your voice. <laughs> oh my gosh, that that's amazing. Oh. I love hearing that. Yeah. yeah. Um, Fantastic. Do you want to read a little bit? Yes, I have something for you. It's it's uh, from the perspective of Henry, young boy's dog, Toto. And it's uh, Toto uh, is already quite old. And he sort of sees his, the, the family dynamic and relationship with Henry in a way um, that gives us another... Uh, um, I suppose a shade to all that's going on. One morning after the cold season came and went, Toto found a quiet spot on the sidewalk. It was a place where he could stay and breathe softly and lie still. Toto had always known these things to make sense. When the boy's mother found him, She brought him to a place where there was a white room. They put him in a cage with a pad underneath, ripped up by other dogs. Toto was getting tired, and if he wanted to, he could sleep. Toto planned to do just that, but hadn't seen the boy. The boy's father came and dropped off Toto in another white room. It was bigger and brighter. They put Toto on a table where he waited for the boy. They put things before his eyes, but Toto didn't pay them any attention. More time went by. Toto waited until noon when the boy's mother showed up again. Something we do, they said, is check if his eyes follow anything in front of him, if he's interested or if he's just there but not looking at us. The boy appeared in the doorway. Toto looked up for the first time and the boy looked at him. These things, they said, they happen so fast in smaller dogs. There are little signs to go by, and by the time we notice them, it's hard to turn things around. The boy's mother picked him up. I'm so sorry, Toto. 
Toto was comfortable. His gaze went up to hers. I didn't know, Toto, she said. I shouldn't have worried so much. I should have thanked you for loving my son instead. She passed Toto to the boy. Leaving his mother with the people in the white room, the boy took Toto to the car. The boy was distraught. He put Toto on his lap. You don't smell like yourself, Toto. You're a little sour. Toto's head rested comfortably on the boy's arm. We can't fix everything for you. You have to want to stay with us, Toto. You do want to stay, don't you? The first notes of sleep fell on Toto, touching his eyes. I don't have anybody but you, and the boy started to shake. Toto's breathing slowed, his fur sank into his ribs. Now the boy seemed to understand. Toto wanted the boy to see for himself what Toto had accepted a long time ago, and if Toto could do it, then he was sure the boy could do it too. Toto, don't go. Please stay. The boy rocked him. It's not real, Toto. It's not happening, Toto. Here they were together, their seeing eyes, serious ears. Here were the months they spent in the weather, the barns and fields, the cars and rooms, and their looks that touched one another as if each were a lake connected by their reflections and hidden in one was a part of the other. Here they'd gone down the road and past the traffic signal, curved toward the narrow path along the fields. Here they counted moths and covered wells and glass bottles. Here they listened to the footsteps of an ant. Here they dressed as piles of leaves, eschewing the light so it could not reach them. And here the sound had gone, but the world could still be seen. Here was their gumption and silliness. Here the boy cried as he said things he didn't mean, like he never knew what Toto was feeling, and Toto recognized the tinge in his own chest. Here the boy said he loved him, and it was a thing so obvious and never had to be uttered except to prepare them for when it couldn't be told again. Here they slowed to a routine of a tiny scale, testing the rise and fall of their breaths, because they were routinely tied together. Here Toto was going to show the boy the edge of their real imaginings. The body that does not die is not a body, and Toto was pleased to bound ahead of the boy on another path. Before the boy's mother returned, Toto left his eyes open and empty gaze, so the boy could see him the way they had met, face to face, but also know that Toto was different. The fuzz on Toto's corneas, the absence of him blinking, his stillness sucking up air. Toto was now in the fields with the mice and the hawks and the rabbits and the foxes and the insects and the fruits and the sun. Toto was in an owl pellet they'd opened together. He was the bones, beaks, and fur. He was their bright and curious joy. From them, nothing could be taken away. The fields and the farmhouses and the animals could disappear. The dust they recognized so well could gallop and the mice could scatter and the cobwebs could fill room after room. Here was Toto joined to the boy like a wish because Toto for the boy could wait forever. Such a beautiful piece. Thank you so much for reading that. Thank you for letting me read it. I I never read it before. Um, I read it the first time I wrote it and then I barely touched it so it's one of the 
chapters in the book that is as close to as uh, the way it was first written because every time I looked at it I would just cry uncontrollably (laughs) and so I couldn't um, in a way go back to it too many times and so I was really nervous because I would usually read another passage but I wanted to start trying to challenge myself to read this moment with Toto Um, I'm so glad that you did it's um a surprise that we get in the book that we get to hear from the dog it's so special um and you know anyone who's had a pet can relate um but it also you know woven through this whole book there's um loss and there's also language um you know there's there's shared language and there's there's language that isn't shared and an example of language that's shared would be henry's relationship with toto and you know, it just makes me think of the larger loss of, you know, that's that the that's woven all throughout this book of the separating of North Korea from South Korea and, mm-hmm. um, you know, the renaming of things, taking that from the people and and taking this shared experience and splitting it. Um, and I just thought, you know, it's happening at a macro level all through this book. It's happening in a small way, you know, not that having a pet and losing a pet is small, but, um, you know, in a very personal individual way, as well as, you know, a, a something that affects the entire world. And I was just so struck by how you were able to do that again and again and again throughout this book. And I wondered if maybe part of that was your decision to make it polyvocal to give so many different characters perspectives in the book can you talk a little bit about that decision Hmm. i'm trying to think about how i would sort of enter this question because there are so many aspects to it and you you've asked such an important question about what's going on in the larger context of the book and I think it's, for me at least, difficult to talk about um, without talking about my life mm-hmm. and the the way I sort of grew up and the way language was so, um, it felt so inaccessible to me. I didn't start speaking until I was five and before that I was a mute and I I can have vivid memories of before the time I could speak. And, you know, I wonder if that's attributed to the languages in household and how speaking any one language would sort of have an effect and consequence with whoever I was speaking to, whether that was trying to speak Japanese with my grandmother and that having a more dire reaction than trying to speak Korean with my parents and then that not um, feeling as, um, I guess, fulfilling uh, for them. That's That was my sense um, as when I spoke English. And so there were, there were so many languages and um, even more than that out, outside of the home. And I wonder if that goes into the way I, I'm... I still feel like that child in some ways when I'm writing and I'm just 
observing and listening and taking in um, the different perspectives because I think what what would constantly be on my mind um, was about how I could see everything in front of me, but I, as soon as I closed my eyes or turned around or went to sleep in my bedroom, it, it, it didn't make sense to me that I, I didn't suddenly wake up and have my mom's eyes or my dad's eyes mm-hmm. or um, my dog's eyes. Why didn't I get to see their lives from their perspective? What was this whole picture that seemed cut away from me? And in a way that can be so liberating to say, oh, I I understand perspective on this very rudimentary level. But at the same time, I think it could cause anxiety and feel always that there's something more to this that I'm missing. And I just would love to understand what that is. And the way to understanding that isn't always accessible through language. Sometimes I had to uh, just sit there and watch and be silent, not necessarily silenced, um, which comes with other connotations, but to just be there. And so I think some of those very early uh, urges and fears do come out in the writing in this way that um, I'm not sort of writing the story and then shaping it to be uh, to have many voices and many characters. It sort of begins that way. It begins with even more characters and many more animals and voices. And the story is shaped by almost trying to pare that down to find uh, a, a theme or some sort of um, a goal that aligns with uh, a few of the central characters. Mm-hmm. I'm really glad that you talked about perception because I was so struck as, as I was reading this book with the voice and, and, you know, we're, we're touching on that a little bit. It's tied up in the language, but it feels like you were capturing each character's voice in this um, like this impressionistic, deft, gorgeous way. Um, Like it, it felt like you were saying existence is perception and absorption and then you marry those two in art when you're trying to express it. Um, but but I, I felt like you were giving us these people, in some cases, you know, th- this animal, this place, um, but you weren't necessarily letting them guide or lead or shape our experience of the book. They were simply who they are. And I feel like that, to me, was the most, just just in terms of like writer to writer, giving us these people, these places, these characters as they were literally like as they actually are, if you could see inside them and also see what they were seeing mm-hmm. um, via this like shrewd economical beauty of the writing. And I think it's tied into what you're saying that it was frustrating or, or anxiety inducing for you to not understand fully these people in your life in your life and the only way to do that was to sort of absorb and observe and 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 then you know process it through you know writing and language um but i i don't think i've ever encountered a book where the voice was so um was as unique as this as the voices in this book oh that that makes me very happy thank you 
I I love what you're saying about all the characters just being who they are and and being themselves and um, being there enough for someone else to come and observe them and um, see for themselves, you know, um, that what what the relationships are between the characters without me being as explicit about those things. We just sort of see those develop um, with the time over time. And it's interesting about uh, the this dog Toto. And uh, because I, during, uh, oh, not too long ago, it was while writing uh, one of the drafts and I, I lost my, my dog, uh, Ari, and I'd been with him for 14 years. And I sort of grew up in the States without my parents and I had been sort of my brother went off to do his own thing. And so from a very, you know, in my youth and all the way into adulthood, you know, Ari was my family. And so losing him was uh, such a significant, uh, I had sort of, uh, I'd experienced loss before, especially in my family and especially, um, just in, 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 in throughout the history of my family, really, but losing my dog was just, uh, it really tore me up. And I think I sat down and I, that's when I decided to sort of dedicate a, a part of the book to Ari and how much, um, he helped me, uh, speak. He helped me understand. He helped me, uh, commune, commune with, the rest of the world, um, even though it wasn't speaking in the way that uh, you might understand that through words. Absolutely. I, I had a professor when I was going to grad school who said, pay attention to the way that your pet inspires you. Pay, pay attention to like the relationship you have with your pet because it's feeding you creatively and you might not un- like recognize that. And ever since then, I have you know, I've, I've had dogs pretty much my whole life. I've had my current dog Wanda for 12 years now. And it's, it's a side of my, it's almost like a freedom. And maybe that's just through like absolute acceptance and they're not looking at you in terms of, are you like, are you pretty? Are you put together today? Are you, you know, like they're not looking at you in those ways that we all assess each other. They're looking at your soul. I mean, I really believe that. And if someone can see that part of you and you're letting that happen and you're also recognizing that in, in this, in this partner, (laughs) I'm going to straight up call it a partner. Um, I, I feel like that can free us creatively do you feel like it feeds you that kind of relationship feeds you, uh, you know, with your writing, with what you're making? Definitely. And as, as we're speaking, my dog is working in the background. Yes, that because, is perfect. <laughs> because we're um, fixing the house. And, and so there's a lot of records going on out there. That's funny because my basement's being worked on right now. So there's a lot of construction. Oh, is there? <laughs> yes. yes. We're doing the exact same thing and so yeah I I think what what I remember is so after we passed we waited uh, for a long while and then we you know 
this lovely bark you hear in the background <laughs> is um is Lily and it's just so interesting because I'll walk Lily around and Lily would just naturally gravitate toward people and they would start telling me how they just lost their dog like a week oh. ago or two weeks ago and it means the world to see Lily run up to them and kiss their face and how she reminds them of their dog and I it, it it's it's really uh devastating but also it's beautiful to know that you know Lily's love is unique and it can never replace because it, they're just so different everyone's so different but can't replace Ari's love but it is also this is pure abundant sort of furnace of love and that that has an effect on me but also the people around me and I get the chance to talk to them about what that's like and how it's going for them and that was really meaningful for me while diving this part of the book that mm -hmm. oh many many people can understand this and our connection to our animal companions it's, that also says a lot to our connection like you said with our soul and with our planet and with uh, our everyday life and the relationships we have in a way uh, having a, re a wonderful relationship with your dog it kind of teaches you that if you know my dog is willing to love a human being why can't I love another human being so in a way dogs can also bring you closer to people and so that's that's been something I've thought about that's such a great point because it really is true dogs just naturally bring you to other people you just find yourself talking to other people you know I mean, I do all the time walking my dog um, and she comes with when we're dropping the kids off at school and stuff. And, and the more that you talk to people in this positive way, <laughs> the more you, because I, I guess I'm trying to say that I feel like lately it's easy to kind of shut yourself off from the world. And we had to do that in the past few years yeah. because of the pandemic. And it's, it really is like a, like a muscle you have to flex you have to like work on it to reopen yourself to people um and as a writer it's so essential um it's it's where we get what we need right in order to to write the next thing we need people it's so true i it reminds me of just how i i, I say this often but i i think it's so true that i couldn't I, I can't write and I couldn't have written the things I have written without sort of the people that have uh, been behind me the whole time or my first poetry teacher, or my first classroom or workshop. I mean, those things are still with me and um, I get to bring them with me to, to the page. And so I, I think I used to believe at one point that it is just me and that it is incredibly lonely and the craft means you have to be alone but I think over time I found that to be less true and maybe it's less true because um, that's also what's helpful that's also what's going to allow me to continue writing is that no this is sort of ev every word that's been said to me every interaction I've had that's sort of all part of what makes this book and so mm -hmm. in essence the book even you though you might say I'm the author it doesn't belong to me it really belongs to 
the rest of the world because that's the world in which I grew up in. That's such a great point because at a certain point you are handing it over, right? It it was yours as you made it. Mm-hmm. And then now, and I think the way that you wrote it extends a hand to the reader. It it offers this these characters, this world, these voices, and the reader has to meet the book where it is, mm-hmm. which is my favorite kind of book because it feels like, it feels like I'm being given something that I can then make something of my own with. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know. I'm, I'm just, I, I'm just in awe. <laughs> I'm just oh, in awe is, of it. it. It's so fun listening to you and talking to you right now because I it's still quite early I I guess and so I haven't talked to many people about the book I haven't heard many re reactions and so this is new to me and I it's exciting to get to say oh wow this this person read this book and (laughs) they're talking about it it's not a figment of my imagination it's real and wow it's it's such a privilege to get to hear you talk about it can I can I ask you sort of who who, some of your favorite characters who's who's someone that you were really drawn to I really love um Huron the the mother-in-law the mother-in-law oh my god I loved her and I actually was going to ask you about that because your your first book is a memoir um Mm -hmm about mothers about mother and daughter right mother daughter relationship and this book has a mother-in-law daughter-in-law relationship and it almost feels at times that Huron is it Huron or Huron yeah Huron Huron yeah okay Huron is understands that as the mother-in-law she must play a role and she she inhabits that role you know she has to sort of like throw a wrench into the relationship between her son and her daughter-in-law um, you know, she has to complain. Um, and then and then there's these beautiful moments where that drops away because it really is her and in Insook. Mm-hmm. It's really them together. It's it's been them together through this life as Sung Ho is off doing his own thing and and kind of not paying attention to the home. And there's just these beautiful couple moments where Huron is is herself and isn't you know, the, the stereotypical mother-in-law complaining and hating her daughter-in-law. Um, and I, I loved her because she is, she's difficult. She's a difficult person. Um, and then we get to see her at Easter, um, Mm -hmm. where she's with the other ladies at her church and, you know, understanding that she's again, not going to win the egg decorating contest. And they're very harsh to her. Mm -hmm. I don't know. She, she, to me was such a complicated, um, difficult, at times unlikable, but real character. I really loved her. I, I love Hunan too. I, when, when, um, towards the end after, well, I, I, well, when we, it, she says not a ghost. And so she's not a ghost, but she's a presence. And she's sort of looking mm-hmm. back on everyone and she's not really looking for her son she's actually looking for her daughter-in-law mm-hmm. and imagining that you know this is the life they live because they were born into the roles they were born into but in the next life she hopes that they might be reborn as sisters mm-hmm. um, and that might offer something new to them and that's 
that's really uh it, it it's it stays with me too because i think my my dad told me a long time ago this idea that you're born uh, it's a korean belief that you're born the parent of the one that you hurt most wow. and it's sort of a way to understand the exchange you make uh, between parent and child and so um what if if we really upset my father he might say wow i must have really owed you big time in the past <laughs> life i must have done something really bad to you to be getting this now and and so it's funny and it's playful but there's another side to that which is it means if you don't hurt each other if you if you free each other from pain and suffering then you may never meet each other again because everything is resolved mm -hmm. and so what ties you together is sometime um the pain you give and and a lot of the times the pain you give is is the pain that you yourself was a source of and so it's it's um the pain you receive is the pain you give and so it's it's i feel like hudan uh, encompasses a lot of that i'm struck by that i'm thinking about i have three kids i'm thinking about <laughs> <laughs> and they're too young i think for you're good um, you're gonna look at them today and be like hmm what did yes. I do? <laughs> what did I do to each of you? And but it's true. It does give you, if I think about it that way, it gives it a level of. Um, well, I I am in service to you. I am I am doing my best to to make it up to you. I'm doing my best to, right? Like it's 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 mm -hmm. it's giving it more grace. I think mm -hmm, than mm -hmm. to just kind of be like, "What's your problem?" <laughs> Yeah. that's quite a beautiful way of looking at it and one I really need to think about more <laughs> um after Huron dies spoiler sorry everyone yeah. Yeah. um the relationship between Sungho and Insook is is healed in a way yeah he, he's he's able to see her yeah. it's it's literally like something falls off his eyes do you do you think it was it's... do you think it was duty to his mother or do you think it was his mother like blotting out the sun for him yeah I, I think it's a little bit of both and it's I kind of laugh or giggle a little bit when you bring that up because it's almost like for Insok she doesn't want to think that's true that it's actually the mother-in-law that's keeping Songho from her it's it's Songho you know it's him and um it's interesting that after her death it really really changes their relationship in that way but I I, I think I uh, a part of that was seeing the relationship between my mother and father um, it was really sort of tempestuous when we all used to live together I was born and raised here in the states and they moved uh, they my dad got a job offer when I was 14 and they moved to together to South Korea when I was about just as I turned 15 I believe and it's so interesting that I, we, they were supposed to be gone for two, three years. And I ended up not being with them again for nine years. But Gosh, wow. when I, when I would, sometimes I would go and visit them in Korea or uh, when I 
came to move to Seattle to see them when they moved to Seattle, um, it was interesting because they were, they seemed so light. They seemed lighter than ever. They seemed more in love. And I didn't want to think that it's because raising me was that hard. (laughs) But I think in a way, it could also be a part of it. And that could be okay. You know, that doesn't um, say anything about me and, and even about them, but that, that it's difficult, you know, to live with your mother-in-law or live with your children. At the time, my mother was taking care of, you know, um, her mother-in-law. And so moving to Korea was not only, you know, giving her that free time, she didn't have to mother, she also didn't have to be a daughter-in-law. And, you know, it's so interesting when I see her now, we're like friends and a lot of the work we've done together was building our friendship. And she's incredibly light and warm and outgoing. And she just seems like, just like a young, young hearted woman. And I think, huh, it could be me. (laughs) That's It's hard. It's hard to be a mom, you know? It's worth, yeah, I think um, it's a layer of identity over an identity you already had, right? And right. um, and in a lot of ways, it's it's work. And <laughs> um, but I think you're absolutely right that it's it's not you. You know, I think I um, as a mother, I can safely say she probably loves and is very proud of you. Right. But it's the dropping away of 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 a responsibility. Um, mm. even as, I mean, I don't know what I'm talking about. I don't know your mom, but you I, know. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I can, you know, I can, I can see what exactly what you're saying. Um, I, and I think that was important for me in, in the way that I could see her again, not just as my mom, but also as a young girl looking for her mom, you know, she was separated from her mom when she was very young and so in a way, she went back to Korea, but she was still a daughter looking for her mom. And I su- suppose I was the daughter looking for her mom on this side of the world. But it, it helped me see um, what she was doing and to have love for her um, and to understand what it took for her to sort of leave me behind and why it was so important for her to do that. I mean, the way that you're describing it, I can see your five-year-old self sitting and observing and trying to understand. And it's, that person is still inside you. That person is what makes you such an amazing writer. Um, I know. I'm still five. You're still five. You're still that beautiful five-year-old, you know, like, and your language is in impression. Your language is in perception. Um, And somehow you're able to put that into words. That's incredible. It, it's so funny. I think uh, the people I've I've grown up with, and they they still kind of laugh about it because I was a really difficult child. Like I couldn't speak. I was terrible in school, and I was uh, the teachers would recommend my mother to put me in different programs for sort of assisted learning or possibly just maybe you know school was not meant for me. And this this was sort of continuous throughout my years and I didn't understand what school was for in a way <laughs> I, I just did it because I was supposed to and 
I let it, I, I, I sort of, and it wasn't until maybe just as I was graduating from undergrad, my counselor, and I was still alone at the time, but my counselor said, you really need to take a math requirement to graduate. Um, but um, because you're having a hard time, I'll let you take a poetry class as a replacement. And so just as I was ready to leave and say, I'm done with this, and I don't have to deal with teachers or this atmosphere and this whole learning thing, I just don't get it. I went, walked into my first poetry class, and then I left and I wrote maybe 40 poems the first week. What? And my teacher just sat me down and said, I know you are about to leave this city and you just want to get out of school before you fail out. <laughs> and um, But I really want to talk to you about poetry. I, I really think that there's something that you're trying to say here and there's something that you're saying very well. And I just never heard that before. I never, I didn't even know what a poem was and I was already, you know, a Eight, I probably much older than maybe eighteen, nineteen by then, and thinking, oh wow, I I can kind of communicate through poetry, um, and it was unlike anything else I'd come across. And so my he introduced me to the poetry director at UCI, Susan Davis, and she took me under her wing. You know, she took me in, talked to me, told me about her love and life and how to observe, how to listen, um, how to read, and how to care. Because I, I think genuinely I didn't know how to care about something at all. I didn't know what that felt like for me, and I didn't know how to do that for anyone else or even the things around me. And it was through her that I really understood, oh, I, I see what it is. Uh, uh, poetry is a form of learning how to care. It's learning and observing is a form of learning how to to give and so those were, I, I would say that's when I understood oh this is what it's for it's school it's not for school it's it everything's there for me for me to um, take what I learn here and do something with it and so yeah this is blowing my mind um what do you think it was about that first poetry class that inspired you that it, it almost sounds like it freed you to to write for you said 40 poems in the first week yeah. and yeah I put them in a folder and gave them to my poetry teacher what do you think it was like what opened the door for you um, I just remember walking into this really uh, old trailer in the poet intro to poetry class and the graduate teacher Greg McClure and he made us read a poem called The Vegetables by James Michael and every it has sort of every stanza or every section has a title of a vegetable and wow. our job at for that first day in class was to try to we split up in groups and try to figure out as a group what this poem is about <laughs> and then we would come together at the end and argue about it and it was incredible because um, we said, oh, it's about uh, life, it's about birth, it's about this and that. And when Greg said, uh, actually, it's about um, his mother, it's about his mother he's caring for in the hospital. And you could tell that by how 
you know, the cult, like these vegetables have like a skull-like quality to them, um, how the fireplaces are cold in the hospital. Um, he said you could get a sense of what's actually going on by reading about these vegetables that she's dying of cancer because the cancer is like the potatoes that grow inside her. They grow under the ground and they hold her still under the ground. And he, he would walk us through these images and the language of why it means this thing and that it can mean no other thing but this. It, like all the other meanings sort of come from this source that he's taking care of his dying mother. And I think that must have had an effect on me to say, like, you, you can say things without saying them and you can um, mean things differently when you do say them. And that language has all these layers and ways of communicating that can touch each other deeply. It's almost like the words themselves don't matter. It doesn't matter that the, you see the word vegetable and these little root vegetables and whatnot. What matters is what you feel by reading these words together. And it's the feelings, it's it's through the feelings that, that we're connected through the experience of our emotions, because our experiences are unique and words are unique and what we assign to each word in terms of images it's all unique but the experience of our emotions that's not unique that's quite universal and so I think that was a triggering point for me in understanding I could communicate by expressing how I feel that's beautiful that's amazing do you remember what you were writing about in your in those those first 40 poems yeah, of course. I was writing a lot about my mother and my relationship to my mother, sort of uh, raising myself in this uh, little house that she'd moved me to about 100 miles from where we used to be. And I would uh, put Tabasco in boiling water and drink that because it just reminded me of the soup she'd make me in the morning. But I would just doused Tabasco all over it because that was the most sort of, sort of the, the taste, the memory. And I would write poems about things like the, the food she'd ship over, like she'd ship kimchi over and it would ripen on the trip because the kimchi needs to sort of um, age, it needs to ferment. And uh, through those poems, I think it was Susan, the poetry director, sat me down and this was a really big lesson for me and probably... One of the things I, I teach now is that, you know, she said, all your poems, you really know how to start a poem. You really know how to fill out a poem, but you don't know how to do the turn, which is the end of the poem. And she said, you're missing magnanimity. And a poem isn't a poem unless it has magnanimity. And I was like, I've never heard this word before. What does it mean? She said, it means at least by the end of the poem, you have to forgive your mother or the poem has to forgive you for not. Otherwise, it's not a poem. It's a journal or it's a diary or it's something you've scribbled down. But magnanimity is what makes a piece of writing a poem. And so I I, I went about writing the memoir, um, rewriting it several times to remind myself that I'm not writing this to say who was right and wrong. I'm writing this to find the magnanimity, to understand what was happening. And I think I wanted to understand um, 
the characters in the same way with the liberators. I think the liberators is very much a part of um, the magical language of others. It's almost a, an extension in that way. I have never heard that notion about the turn at the end, including magnanimity. I think in some ways it's true for um, it's true for all kinds of writing. Um, it's what differentiates, you know, just like she said, what di differentiates it from journaling is it's it's accessing that universal emotion that you were talking about, right? Like we can all be angry at your mother with you, mm -hmm. but there has to be something universal that makes it art, right? Right, right. Susan Davis, incredible. <laughs> I know. Um, I wanted to bring up Robert to to bring it back to the oh, writers. Yeah. He's yeah. such an interesting character, and I feel like he. Um, there's this notion of apology all throughout the book. Mm -hmm. This idea that if there's just the right apology, you know, then things can heal, or they can mm -hmm. revert, or they can become anew, and. And I think that's that's sort of an ask for an acknowledgement of the trauma of of the of the break of what was done to Korea, and continues mm -hmm. to be done. And um, do you feel like it almost feels like the, that this quest of his is 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 absolutely right? He's absolutely right. That is deserved. That is needed. But that it's doomed because even if that ever happens, it wouldn't be enough. Yeah, I really love when Robert um, and it's really Henry that's reflecting on Robert and I think Henry sees Robert in a beautiful way that maybe nobody else does sort of Henry's eyes can see Robert this way but he recalls when Robert told him that apology an apology isn't just saying you're sorry saying that I wish it never happened um, by the end of the book he's saying that an apology is when you also imagine the losses and imagine a future had those losses not occurred and the loss of that future um and 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 so when he said that it really i think it came from a place from reading about um learning and seeing so many famous apologies throughout history from uh, countries or presidents or um, certainly we see pictures and images but and and we also see them on memorials we also see them on um, sort of reconciliation sites and monuments as well but I I very rarely came across this idea of imagination also being important to um, an apology not to say that uh, that that would suffice but that we do have to use almost our cre creativity to to fully understand and um, to fully put in our minds uh, the, f the future that that's not going to happen because of what occurred and that that loss I mean once understood that loss isn't just a loss in the past then that loss is in continuity it's sort of a loss that happens uh, in the present constantly because it's the present is sort of parallel to what could have been 
um, or what should have been. And that's the life we're living. And, and an, an acknowledgement of that is, I think, the beginning of what an apology uh, tries to do. And I think Robert was was trying to teeter toward that. Um, but I think there, what's some, something interesting about Robert is that he does give up everything else for his sort of moral ethical values for, um, you know, the, of, of what happened with Korea, US and Japan. And I think over time I, I saw through, through his actions and his words that something that's missing. And I, I come across even in my academic work is, a conversation about love because you'd think that love is very separate from those conversations that you know love isn't involved in reparation it's not involved in apology it's not involved in uh, taking stock of um, you know lost history or you know burnt records and whatnot but I think love is is something that's really important to talk about and needs to be there in any conversation that has to do with uh, reparation or liberation, this this need uh, and this uh, willingness to talk about, oh, well, we also want to do this with love. And I think Insop does that. I think Songho succeeds in that. It, it, it's almost like all our efforts toward liberation is really um, in, in vain without love. Uh, love has to be a, a component of that. Is that what you would say? Do you have any hope or optimism for relations between North and South Korea? Is is it is it rooted in love? Your optimism, if you have any. That's so interesting because I think uh, U.S. plays such a big role in the way we portray uh, North Korea as mm-hmm. instead of um, sort of really looking at the North Korean people and also the U.S. role in what happened Mm -hmm. and uh, just a global acknowledgement of of, my goodness, what all all the atrocities that occurred on that peninsula and that affected people beyond. But I think what's interesting is that uh, being a Korean American, I I really want to come to that table. I really want to set that table and see, well, I, I I think there are perspectives from the Korean diaspora that is also part of Korean history that maybe um, is isn't as isn't as talked about. I would say um, among Korean nationalists, right, like Korean Americans or um, any any Korean outside of the main peninsula like what is their relationship to the border and what happened is there a relationship at all I mean those are some of the questions that are asked and I I think I was really compelled by that to say of of course you know um, I think the way we uh, I think also about the way we hold memory and I believe Elizabeth Rosner talks about this really beautifully in Survivor Cafe. And she, and where she does research on the Holocaust, but also, uh, you know, sort of other terrible mass events across world history. And she talks about how 
we have different types of memory. We have a sort of national memory or state memory. It's the memory that's sort of sanctioned. Then we have a collective memory, which might be the memory of our community and those around us. And we have like an individual memory that is, uh, and this is part of something I'm adding on to that, the individual memory of the way we remember things to have happened. Mm -hmm. And an example of that is, you know, state memory in Korea might say, you know, my great grandfather um, wasn't stoned to death by um, Korean national police, but we don't know that. But that's sort of the memory that um, my, you know, my father and uh, my dad's side of the family would have to have had to survive. Otherwise, they would sort of face persecution. It's like how much of that state memory imposed on the collective memory that says that might not be true. You know, mm-hmm. you know, national police might have very well come on to Jeju Island um, and and they well we know that they did backed by us but that they were also involved in um the stonings that happened and so so that collective memory really it it, it even hit, and we see state memory in something like a memorial like really like you you see the black marble or really kind of spare and then you see collective memory sometimes you'll see that when you drive and you see a little poster at a corner with a photograph and some flowers of you know someone who might have passed there but that that vividness that colorfulness that personal element that's more collective memory and protecting the collective memory against um, state memory is something I've thought about when it comes to um, well well let's start from the beginning how can we even agree on what happened you know can we even talk about that? Um, and that's one of the things that come into, uh, that become contentious when talking about the North and South. And also there's individual memory, the things we have and the, the, the sort of hurt that is stored in our bodies and that our forebears also have in their bodies and that we have to reckon with to understand where is this all coming from? EJ, thank you so much. This has been such an incredible conversation. You are brilliant. This book is brilliant. It is um, heartbreaking, gorgeous, funny, sad. It's everything. Um, I think people are going to freak out. <laughs> oh, thank you. I, I I really hope that the story does, that the stories in here and the characters do allow us to have conversations like the one we're having like one we had today with you. I mean, that's sort of what it's all for. It's it's for this moment and to share it with you and for someone to say, hey, tell me more about what's happening on the peninsula. Tell me more about our memories, our dogs, our, um, you know, our writing. And that's really, I think, the the goal. So thank you for doing this. It's a beautiful starting point for connection that you've created. Um, and I am so honored that you came on to talk to me about it. Thank you so much. 